Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. There's a lot of exciting stories that we've gotten to tell over these last, um, it's actually going on like 17 years soon that this uh, kind of movement has been around. We launched officially in 2007. I made the first YouTube video in 2005. Um, around this time of year, during the three weeks, there's something that we're supposed to be thinking about, especially, and that is Jewish unity. So we've told stories over the years of, you know, interesting Orthodox Jews who do out of the box things to break stereotypes. Um, and this time of year, we need to be looking across the aisle, um, no matter where you are in the Jewish community, to think about what can I do to increase my understanding, um, my um, love, my connection to my fellow Jew. The reality is, is that we are a small people and we are a people with many different opinions, with many different ideas of how to live um, and what the right way to live is. And um, and we are not short on opinions and being a passionate people with lots of opinions can easily devolve into um, challenges, into fighting, into uh, holding hatred in our heart. And we're told by Chazal, by our sages, that it was due to baseless hatred that the Beis HaMikdash at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem was destroyed 2,000 years ago. And in this period of the three weeks, um, as we lead up to Tisha B'Av, the day of destruction, of many destructions, of many calamitous events within Jewish history, we are told that the antidote to this very painful exile that we're in is baseless love. And so I recently heard from a reform rabbi uh, named Robin Frisch, who had the most wonderful story that she shared with me. She is a reform rabbi. Her husband's a conservative rabbi, um, and their son became a Baal Tshuva, and he's on the road to becoming a Haredi rabbi. He got married recently, um, and they welcomed their daughter-in-law into the family as one of their own. Uh, so not only do they not reject their uh, Baal Tshuva son, um, which is a knee-jerk reaction in many cases. It's challenging. There's many challenges to this journey of uh, becoming observant, you know, or more traditionally observant. Um, but, you know, they even, uh, you know, with their daughter finding a wife, um, they've come to, you know, see what an addition, a beautiful addition she is to their family. Um, so Rabbi Frisch, thank you so much for joining us. And I would say um, I'm so excited to hear your wisdom um, because it's not just, you know, I think there have to be certain uh, mido, certain, you know, character traits that allow a person to kind of see bigger than their their little box or sort of maybe the ideas they had in mind for their children. But also it takes wisdom to um, kind of make good decisions about, you know, how to build bridges as opposed to maybe devolve into pettiness, which is something that I think is a, a very basic human trait. So, so thank you first for your leadership. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And I think what I've learned more than anything is that this story is just about love for a child. And, you know, it took, I can't say that seven years ago or so when this all began, oh, everything was easy. And I, I'm happy to share some of the challenges we faced. But I'm also pretty much able at this point, seven years into this, to look back and say, we've ended up in an amazing place. And I do like to use my family as an example of Paul Israel, because unfortunately, I think that concept of Jews just loving each other because we're Jews, which is what I was taught growing up is really important, is not something we see enough of in any community. And I know when I tell my colleagues, I have a Haredi son, 
they look at me honestly with pity. Like, oh my goodness, you poor thing. I'm like, actually, he's awesome. And his wife is awesome. And, and I consider myself the luckiest mother in the world because I have a terrific child with a terrific, I got a fourth terrific child out of my daughter-in-law. But again, it didn't happen overnight. And it was a long process to get here. And all I could say is I feel so blessed to be here because I often think back if I had just rejected my son's choices when he was 15, 16, he would have walked out of the house at 18 and probably never turned back. And, and to think now of what that would be like and how horrible that would be versus learning to negotiate and learning to listen to him and learning to realize that he's making choices that are different than the choices my husband and I made. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It just means he wants a different lifestyle. And again, had I not been able on some level to do that and we're sitting here now as a mom who didn't see one of my children, I'd be heartbroken. And instead, I have four kids and a grandchild on the way. It's really, it's tremendous. Um, I became observant and um, I had a lot of pushback from my father, especially who um, had all of these ideas in his head of what an Orthodox Jew meant. Um, and we really went head to head and, you know, I was fortunate enough to not only have them eventually accept me, but um, my entire family joined me. And, you know, I think it's very unusual to have so much um, positivity that you have. Unfortunately, I think your story is the exception and not the rule. I think my story is also the exception, not the rule. Um, but I think, you know, we had a lot of of that foundational love and understanding and conversations and um, and I think that, you know, we need more of this, whatever the outcome is. Hopefully the outcome is some sort of peace um, in the home. That's really the Jewish ideal. Um, but I've seen, you know, families where the parents would prefer for the kid to marry a non-Jew uh, than to, you know, become an Orthodox Jew. And with numbers, you know, dwindling like ours is, that says a lot. So if you could take us back to, you know, Several years ago, when your son started uh, this path down, you know, orthodoxy, the yeshivish path, he was obviously raised. Did you raise him more in a reform home, reform home, or a conservative home? Because you and your husband sort of have a blend right there in terms of even denominations. I would say just a Jewish home, a liberal Jewish home. I don't identify strongly as a reform Jew. I identify strongly as a Jew who's ordained as a reform rabbi, and I think my husband would say the same. He went to a pluralistic Jewish day school. Uh, my middle son goes to Camp Ramon, the conservative movement, loves it there. My older son was not a camper. So it was, I would just say, a, just a, a Jewish home, but certainly not an Orthodox Jewish home. And I will share, because it was interesting what you said about your dad. At one point, my husband and I sat our son down early on and said, you know, Orthodox people can be really judgmental. And we're very concerned that you're going to be very judgmental of us. And he looked at us not in a way to be fresh or disrespectful. And he said, do you know how judgmental you have been of me and everything I've done up until this point? And we were done with that because he was right. And I think for me, that was one of those turning points where I strive so hard not to be judgmental, especially about how people live their religious lives. And in being so concerned that he was going to judge us, I was judging him. And that just, you know, seven years later stays with me. But it's mm -hmm. when I realized that he's choosing a different path and it doesn't mean he doesn't love me. It doesn't mean he might be judged. We all judge. You know, I'm sure he had judgments of our path or he wouldn't have gone a different way. But it doesn't mean that he's rejecting us or not loving us as parents. It meant that his Judaism was going to be different. 
I love, I mean, also, you know, I praise your wisdom and I also praise your humility right now. That's a lot to, you know, swallow. It's not always, it's not easy to take feedback in general. It's not easy to take feedback from our kids, but to be able to kind of step back and see it and own it um, and then make, you know, a change. Um, it's just, it's incredible. That's exactly what this time of year calls upon all of us to do. We all have areas where we can, you know, uh, kind of stop and take a look and, um, you know, uh, just be a little bit more aware of behavior that we're sure that we were not practicing that maybe we actually were practicing. So how did your son going to a pluralistic school um, get the orthodox bug? Did it come from a certain person he met or a certain experience? You know, I'm going to have to ask him that because I get asked that by people all the time. And honestly, I don't know. It's something that he not so slowly began to seek out. You know, a lot of people ask me, did people pray on him? Did Orthodox rabbis come and try to grab him? And not at all. It was just the opposite. It was something that he started to find interesting and compelling. And he started to look for people who could mentor him and people who could guide him. And one thing I have to say that really touched me is that often if he went to someone's house for Shabbat, they would call my husband my first because he was a minor. He was about 16 years old. And they would say, is it okay if he comes for Shabbat? Is that all right with you? And that's another thing that made me feel really comfortable and really good that they were helping us to create Shalom Bayit. And they wanted to make sure that we, his parents, were on board with what he was doing and that they weren't trying to get him to do something that would be uncomfortable for us. And it happened pretty fast. Uh, he went from, he wanted to go to originally this school that uh, was co-ed, but it was separate for the Jewish studies. And we said, no way. And then by September, he was there. But over the summer, he started to say, I don't want to go there. It's co-ed. It's not a yeshiva. And that's when I said, well, sorry, that's as far as we'll go to the right. Uh, about a month into school, he switched to an all-boys yeshiva. And it was he loved it. It was called the Sift. He was very happy. But through the whole year, he kept saying, I want to go to Nair Israel next year. That's a yeshiva where I could live in Baltimore. And we said, we're not going to send you away for 11th grade. There's no way. He went to Nair in 11th grade. Um, as much as we missed him, I think those two years at Nair were so essential and critical for him. I also think um, being a Baltshuva at such a young age, he learned so much. So he didn't have to go to a special yeshiva at 18 or 19. He was already, he went to the Nair yeshiva um, in 2020, right in the midst of the pandemic another issue but he was able to live a life like many of his peers who grew up from and that's been really nice for him I think that he doesn't have to feel different or not as knowledgeable as many of his peers but he he is just very persistent uh, another thing this was the wisdom of my middle son at one point I made a comment and we're sitting at dinner one night and I referred to his orthodox phase that he was in the midst of and my younger son who's a couple years younger said you know Ima that's not really nice. Even if it is a phase, no one wants to hear that something they're doing and care deeply about isn't who they are. And, you know, it was another one of those times where you think, wow, they have a lot more wisdom than I do sometimes. And again, I thought if it is a phase, he'll grow out of it. Honestly, at that time, I was hoping it was a phase, but it wasn't. And I am glad that I began to treat him as if what this was. This is who he was and who he is. You know, I want to praise you again. This is really just um, all about uh, I'm your fan club, your biggest fan club now. The other way too. <laughs> you, um, you raise kids who can voice their opinion honestly at you. You know, a lot of the work that we see in our organization um, of people who kind of break their connection to Judaism 
um, what we see a lot of patterns is, is that they never actually had a voice that they felt comfortable to uh, express. Uh, they never felt seen, held, heard, um, and that, that sort of sense of not being a part of where they came from made them want to break away. Sometimes people become observant for that same reason. They don't feel comfortable at home, securely attached at home, and so they need to break away, become something different. You've raised your kids to be thinkers. You've raised your kids to um, have confidence in their opinions, to express them to you. And this is the most Jewish thing. Our leaders uh, talk back to God. So um, that's tremendous that you've raised kids who are solid in you know that uh, attachment. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, I think another piece talking to a mother whose kids left observance completely, she said part of the work that she had to do was if we have a certain vision for our children of how they're going to end up, we all do this. We all, whether it's a career, whether it's what their family life will look like, we kind of see naturally many parents see children as an extension of ourselves. Um, and if they decide to, you know, make a change different from whatever that vision looked like, that could feel like we're kind of losing an appendage. Was that any process you had to go through of kind of like the initial idea? And then now he's becoming something that we had never envisioned. Absolutely. I remember saying to so many of my friends, I always said that I wanted my kids to be independent, but I realized what I really meant was I wanted them to independently end up making the major choices that I made in life. And when they're really independent, they're going to go off on all kinds of different paths that you may never have imagined. Uh, but the one thing I would say to parents of Bali Chuba or children who've made any kind of different choice is it's hard. You know, there are definitely challenges, but there can also be many blessings. And right now I'm at a point where I've learned of these wonderful blessings from the world, as I said, that my son is in and the person he's become and the life that he leads and the woman that he leads it with. And if you are able to just let them be who they are, they can take you on a journey you may never have imagined going on. And you can learn from them and you can experience the blessings. When he, he hasn't been as home as much for Shabbat for a number of reasons now that he's married, but when he used to come home for Shabbat, we would sit and play chess at Shabbat after. And, you know, my other kids don't want to do that. They're on their phone doing whatever they're doing um, or they're with their friends. But, you know, I realize there are certain things or, or non-religious things we can do together. You know, we'll take the dogs on hikes and just there, you know, you make the things that you can do together that you're comfortable doing. And even though, for example, we may spend Shabbat differently, I love doing Havdalah with them together at the end of Shabbat. And so there are still so many things that you can share, even though you may not share some of the things you always thought you would share. I'll also just add that when I marry a couple, and this was before, but now I often use my son as an example, I'll, you know, they'll say, oh, we're going to start celebrating Shabbat with kids. And I always say, first of all, starting anything when you have kids is a really hard time to do it. But I said, if you're going to be doing something in your home just because you want your kids to think it's important, it's going to be transparent. You've got to do in your home what you do because it's meaningful to you and create a life that you love and that make a Shabbat that you love and a Shabbat that's meaningful to you. And when your kids are there, they can enjoy because when they get to that age, they're going to make their own choices. Some are going to want a stricter Shabbat. Some are going to like Shabbat. There's going to be a million choices and they're going to make their own choices. So you have to have that home that is the right home for you. And as your kids get older, that may take adjustments, but they're going to turn out who they are. You know, I just love when parents before they have kids have all these notions of they're going to do this and they're going to be this way. And 
you know, I just use my own three kids who couldn't be more different from each other and from my husband and I as an example. Um, but personally, you know, it would probably be pretty boring if they all turned out just like us. It, this is in us on all kinds of adventures. So. When I was searching for sort of what my path would look like, I knew I'd already had decided I wanted to be Orthodox. But even within that, there's so many different choices and branches and it was overwhelming. Um, I spent a summer studying in Israel and I was really struggling to try to figure out like, where do I belong in, you know, this vast array of choices. And um, this woman that was much more to the right of me and living in Svat, kind of this mystical Haredi life that was not for me. She said to me, there were 12 tribes that each had their own way, go find yours. And that was one of the most empowering things that even built into the system besides, you know, speaking up and arguing, um, we value diversity, uh, not just like you, what you said before that, you know, I want them to be free thinking and end up like me, but that we actually see the contribution of Jews, you know, holding different positions and, you know, sort of um, having their own way to serve God as creating that tapestry um, of what Kleisrael is meant to be. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really tremendous. Let's talk like some practical things because we're kind of getting up in the journey now of him getting schooled and where he's ending up in school. And then um, marriage has to come up. You mentioned a daughter-in-law. One of the questions that came in from one of our readers is, um, how did you feel about the shidduch process, about, you know, the matchmaking process that, you know, I assume there's going to be a very different, there was a very different vision in your head of how he would date and become engaged. And then, you know, probably a couple of years later, a wedding much later in life. Yeah, that's certainly the age at which you would be doing. It was one of the big things. So I will say two years ago, it scared the living daylights out of me. Um, I will also say that I want to be very clear that every, there are so many, as you mentioned, so many different Orthodox communities and dating is different in each of those communities. So I am speaking very specifically to my son's experience in his particular Litvish Haredi community. He happens to not be Hasidic. Um, and I, I say this because I wrote an article about it for the forward and I got a lot of people writing, um, and I don't mean to in any way make a comment about the entire group, but some former Hasidic women who were really traumatized by the experience. He is not part of the Hasidic community. People asked me to write an article then saying about all the bad things about fixing up in the Hasidic community. I said, a couple people wrote to me their experiences. I am not the one to speak about that. I'm sure that there are people of great experiences, people of hard experiences, just like in any other community in the world. But I do feel that I need to, after that experience, qualify. I'm speaking to my son's specific community. Um, so we knew, you know, we knew by the time this happened that he was going to date someone six to eight times and get married and sounded very foreign and, and quite frankly, very strange to me. And how will they know each other? And is this really a good idea? On the other hand, I know some Indian couples who knew each other, met once, and they're now married 30 years and quite happy. I also know Orthodox couples who met five to eight times who are incredibly happy 50 years into a marriage. So I know that it can work. So my son went on a few dates with different women that he was fixed up with and hadn't met the right one. Last June, he went on a few dates with this woman. I will never forget, my husband and I were heading to Israel. We were sitting on the plane. It was about July 3rd or 4th. And we got a call. He said, oh, we're going on a third date. I really like her. So we were going away up for two, two and a half weeks. And I said to my husband, he could be engaged when we get home. And I was half kidding. Um, before we came home from Israel, two weeks into it, I started getting calls every day from my son. I want to propose, but you should meet her first. You're getting home Tuesday. Can you come Wednesday? He's very persistent. And I said, well, you know, 
I'm not sure what jet lag's going to feel like. Of course, I want to meet her, but I don't know what I'm going to feel like Wednesday. I can't tell you till I get home. So then I'd get a call the next day. Can you come Wednesday? He kept just thinking if he kept calling enough that I would change the answer. Finally, we agreed that we were going to come. My husband's going to drive me and we were going to come on Thursday. But I guess he was very anxious. He ended up, um, he did propose to her on Wednesday. So we had not even met her. It was about a month after they met. They'd been on maybe six or seven dates. He obviously really, really liked her. Um, you know, it still was a little weird to me. They'd never been in a room together without the fear that someone would walk in. They had never physically touched. It was definitely different than my world. But we, because they were now engaged, her parents invited us for dinner that Thursday night. Um, just as an aside, I ended up in the emergency room the night after we got back from Israel. Wednesday night, turned out it was just pink eye. They said, you can't go anywhere. I was traumatized. Talked to a friend who's a nurse. She said, you're not in nursery school. As long as you don't touch anyone, you're fine. We told her parents. They said, it's fine. So we went for dinner. Turns out that her parents are Balai Tshuva. So she has, she happens to have grandparents who she's incredibly close to who are not Orthodox. Um, so, and they're also very understanding. Um, and I just said to her parents, look, if we have questions, please just be honest with us and tell us the right answer because I've never been to an Orthodox wedding. Um, but we had a lovely time. We really liked her family. Then the following Sunday was the bar, the engagement party. And we came back for that. And my daughter-in-law was, I, it was the most amazing scene. The men were in one room, the women were in the kitchen. She saw me, she had all these friends around her. I mean, literally I had a line of girls standing to tell me how wonderful she is. And then it was like the party in the Red Sea. She comes over. She says to me, am I allowed to hug you today? And I said, it's okay. I'm going to cry because I was telling the story. She said, she calls me Eva. And I said, but you have an Eva. She said, I actually call my mom, mommy. You're my Eva. And that was it. I was, it was, I, I mean, obviously we developed a, a deeper relationship based on more than that. But the fact that it didn't matter that I wasn't Orthodox, I was her Eva, meant the world to me has always meant the world to me. She has been wonderful. Um, when I did write this article to the forward, I sent it to her before and I said, I just want to make sure you're comfortable with this because obviously my relationship with this, you is way more important than anything I could ever publish. And it was an article about how I was sick of people talking about my son's marriage. It's an arranged marriage because he did have free will. He could have said no. You know, I just was really fed up basically with the way the people in the liberal community were understanding his relationship. And she said, it's a beautiful article. I agree with everything but one thing. And I said, what's that? She said, could you please include, you say we have free will, but in fact, it is an arranged marriage. It's arranged by Hashem. And since then, I've always said to my son, Hashem must really like you because you scored with this one. <laughs> so, you know, and they very much love each other a year later. And uh, I guess, yes, now they've known each other over a year. Um, it's a beautiful marriage. I, as, as much loving and beautiful as any couple I know who knew each other for five years before they got married. I don't know if that happens all the time or not, but I think that the Shadchan took a lot of really important things into consideration, knew what each of them were looking for. They had deep discussions when they got together. And then the love really developed and blossomed after they got married. I want to qualify your qualification about the Hasidic dating because we work with the people that, you know, you heard from, which is the people, again, getting back to the people that did not have a voice that did not feel seen or heard at home. So in a situation like that, when dating goes quickly, it can be 
tremendously problematic that people don't feel like they have agency in the healthy Hasidic homes um, where they do have a voice, where they do feel like they can say their real truth out loud um, and they can be disagreeable um, in those situations. Um, they also can find love, just what you're describing here. And I think, you know, the nuance that you're bringing to this, that, you know, you got past the stereotypes or hearing the worst stories and seeing for yourself when it's done in a healthy way. And it's because you raised a healthy son that he sought out, you know, healthy um, people within the Orthodox world. And I think, you know, in terms of giving advice to parents, you need to, I think it's one of those hard things to take a look. Is the kid, you know, rebelling because they're, you know, searching for acceptance that they didn't have acceptance at home? Or are they finding a truth that resonates with them, but they're taking? Because it sounds to me like your son actually incorporated the values that you taught him to have a voice, to be a free thinker. And he made a little bit of a different, you know, sort of tweak in how he does the Jewish piece, but he's actually incorporating your values. And it's probably why you can feel like you still did give a piece over to him in this. He did not become some foreign thing you can't recognize. He actually still be, is an extension of the home that he came from. Um, he just added his own sort of uh, individual piece to that. Does that make sense? It does. And I think the hardest thing for people to understand is he's still the same person. He mm -hmm. practices religion differently. Uh, every day someone asks me, what's it like with his siblings? I'm like, he comes, he's a football, he's the same kid. You know, he's fun. He's silly. He comes home. He's, you know, he may not talk to his brother who's in college. whose world is about his fraternity as much. You know, he used to be much more into sports, which he still could be as an Orthodox person. Some of his friends are. He just doesn't have that interest as much right now. But when they're together, or, you know, if they call each other, they're still the same people and they still have the same type of conversations. And then, you know, sometimes my other kids are fascinated. My other son actually, um, he doesn't learn Kelly Catan all the time by any means, but he wanted to have one that he could wear occasionally on Shabbat. And so actually my Haredi son got someone in Lakewood to donate $400. And my he, he bought a whole bunch of Kelly Catan. And he took them to camp for Ma, this conservative camp, and his entire bunk of 16-year-olds all wore them the first Shabbat of camp. Hmm. And so, you know, sometimes it's religious things they share. Sometimes it's other things. But just because someone is practicing differently does not mean they're a different person. And I think that's what sometimes, I mean, that's part of what I was so scared of, actually. And when I came to realize this is just my son who lives a different religious life, that was really empowering for me and really brought me to a place where I realized, okay, we can have Shalom Bayi and there is nothing to be scared of. I mean, it, yes, there were a lot of changes. And again, I, I don't want to make light of, of of all the differences, but it's not that you become a different, you don't have to be a different person. So let's talk a couple more like kind of um, practical questions and we just have kind of wrap this up. Unfortunately, I could talk to you for much longer. Um, practically speaking, um, how does each side bring their best self to a potential, you know, conflict, whether it's something around a holiday, a family event that's going to, you know, have some sort of conflict in terms of food, in terms of Shabbat, that sort of a thing. How do you bring your best self on either side, do you think, so that you can do a negotiation that will come out, you know, with a most peaceful resolution? So I think one of the most important things, and this is true for any relationship is just to come at it with curiosity instead of coming with like you're doing it wrong or you know I remember once saying this and do you really think God cares if you tear toilet paper before Shabbat and you know I do it it's like yes I do and so I don't know what my purpose was for answering that question other than being kind of obnoxious and saying 
I don't really understand this particular holocaust why you have to follow it. But if you, you know, maybe if I had said, I'm really curious, like you find that really meaningful, what is it about it that speaks to you? Um, or, you know, for us, it's sometimes maybe we're not always the right place for him to be for a holiday. You know, I'm, I'm really, as much as I wish he could be with us all the holidays, like I love that he has a wife's family he can be with now for the first two days of Pesach. And we spent a whole week with him this year. So sometimes that just, we were going to cousins for the first Seder. We wouldn't have been able to do that if he were with us. Sometimes it might mean not being together and then finding times you can be together that are comfortable. Or when he was living home at one point during the pandemic, um, you know, we keep, I kind of think of like conservative kosher, but he's a whole different level of kosher and we do our best, but I know he's not always really comfortable with things at our house. And so one night we're sitting down to dinner and he just kind of took a paper plate and put something on it. And my husband got really upset. He said, we made a dinner that you can eat. But I could see it was like he wasn't comfortable eating it. And maybe an Orthodox rabbi would have sat there and said, you can eat that. Like, you're wrong. But they weren't there. And I was like, you know what? He's not upset eating something different. So let's just let him eat something different. So sometimes it's just making it work. Not everyone's going to love 100% the way it is. But I mean, food, I think, can be a really tough one. So bring your own food when you're going to your parents if they're not ready to keep a house that's kosher in the way that's comfortable for you. Um, you know, do your best when your child's coming. Find out before what they're comfortable eating, what you'll need to do. Um, I didn't know about toibling certain things before, even that were brand new, for example. But I've learned that. Um, maybe go shopping together. Like find a way before so that you don't get into circumstances that are difficult for you. And also know that I think we're all trying our best, you know, in most cases for the parents and the kids have to understand from the parents' perspective that this is a lot of change. And even when they're trying really hard, they're going to make mistakes sometimes. Um, but the fact that they're trying says a lot. And parents have to understand that, yeah, this is difficult. And at least from my end, sometimes I feel like, but we're the ones making all the compromises, which I once said to my son. And he said, actually, I think I'm making all these compromises. So, you know, and of course, every child and every parent is different. But if you just remember, like they're trying, we're trying, ask questions, but ask them at the right time and ask them in the nicest way. And when they say something that might be hurtful, maybe just say, look, I know you didn't mean to be hurtful, but here's why that was hurtful for me. And maybe you could say it a little bit differently next time. Amazing. We are unfortunately out of time, but this is so much wisdom. Um, I am so emotional listening to you because if we could all like adopt just a piece of your advice, we could probably bring Mashiach by next week. Um, so really um, thank you for just your, I mean, this is real work. This is, this is humility. This is, um, you know, being honest um, and it's, it's true leadership, like I said, and I'm so glad that we have this platform to, um, promote your voice louder. And I want to continue thinking about ways to bring you in because you really do have a very important voice in this conversation. You should continue to get nachas from your children, um, and, you know, have years of healthy and happy and peaceful times together. Yeah. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. And thank you so much for listening. You can catch the same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.